The U.S. launching an attack on Syria in a joint operation with British and French forces. President Bashar al-Assad, who is running for a fourth seven-year term. Russian and Syrian flags are now flying in northern Syria, close to the border with Turkey. Less than a week ago, this area was controlled by Syrian Kurds. We only have 15 minutes left in the Asian Is there sending his guys, Shervan? Will you send your guys, or we'll get the other dudes to go in? We need to move, man. No stack fire, top six box taking fire from vicinity. Uh, LZ, HLZ rock cover. Going to fire the Kilo code 33111 over. So called Islamic State has launched the largest scale attack in Syria since it was defeated there in 2019. They see the footboard, we push up, we push up, we push up. lost on the commander of all Kurdish forces, U.S. ally General Mazlum Kobani. Compound where Baghdadi was hiding. As I noted earlier, this isolated compound was in Idlib province in northwest Syria, approximately four miles from the Turkish border. Welcome to episode one, everybody. Um, so this is the Syrian Summers podcast, and we're trying to get something together for you guys as a community so you can feel more connected with what's going on, uh, especially in Syria and the geopolitics of that region, but also to just kind of like have a place where we can talk and talk with other GWAT veterans, especially those who've been over there, uh, whether that be, you know, U.S. forces uh people who fought for the ypg the ypj or the sdf um we want a place where we can preserve those stories and bring them to you guys as a community so uh with me today i have a very special guest uh cody dudridge who i'll allow to introduce himself but he just got back from rlz recently and just got out of the arizona national guard so with that, Cody, go ahead, take it away. Tell us a little bit about about you. Well, I've been in the Army for about 10 years. I just got out uh, last month, last May 26th, and I got out of high school in 2011, went straight into the Army. I was a part of the 7th Cavalry in Fort Hood for about three and a half or so years, and then I got out of there. Once I left Fort Hood, as they had fenced me in, I was trying to go to a a light unit. I was, I was done with mechanized reconnaissance. Uh, I wanted to go to a light unit. And they said, no, nah, man, you're going to have to stay with the, stay with the seventh or get out. And I'm like, okay, cool. I'm getting out. So I, uh, Fort Hood. The oh great yeah. Place, yeah. I right? got played into being affiliated with them. Uh, when I first joined, they, uh, no, not when I first joined, but when I first got to the unit, uh, one of the platoon sergeant walks up and says, Hey, yeah, sign this paper. I'm like, Oh cool. What's it for? And he's like, Oh, it's affiliation. So on your ASUs, you can wear the unit crest just above your nameplate, your name tag. And I was like, oh, cool. So I signed it. And all that came back to haunt me when I was trying to trying to leave. And like, nope, you're staying with the 7th. <laughs> so I uh, <laughs> went to go talk to the um, National Guard recruiter trying to during my ETS. And he goes, yeah, well, we have a scout position open in California Guard and with a $20,000 signing bonus. And I'm like, cool, sign me up. So I did it. And I came out to Arizona because I was going to go to Arizona State at the time. And so every month, I, every month I was going down to San Bernardino for drill yeah. and I got tired of that. And then I found out that California was broken. They didn't have the $20,000 that they promised me. Oh, really? It was, it was during that whole, uh, uh, debacle with the false signings where I, I wouldn't say false signings, but like recruiters are basically promising money that the state didn't have. Oh, yeah. really? So I had no idea. About that. I mean, obviously people got their money later on cause it's in the contract. But I, on top of driving down to San Bernardino once a month out of Arizona and with that, I was frustrated. So I did an interstate transfer. I called up and I, the uh, IST liaison for Arizona was basically saying, yeah, man, we don't have any 19 series in Arizona. So you have to choose something else. We have 15 Papa and 15 Quebec open right now. And so, yeah, I jumped over to air traffic and it was fun for a while it lasted. But, you know, just like everything else in the military, I got tired of it. So you're now in the guard as an air traffic controller. Yes. So what was that like 
going from, you know, combat MOS into air traffic control? So it was different going from a line unit, especially a mechanized line unit to, you know, kind of a support aviation unit. Mm -hmm. It was a completely different world. I definitely had some struggle adjusting there. Mm -hmm. And we actually, in our unit, we actually have a lot of dudes who come back from the combat side of things. Mm -hmm. And I, I, now that I've kind of relaxed after about seven or so years as that MOS, I kind of, I saw it from an outside perspective. I was like, okay, so that's what I looked like. I was like an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) And so just seeing it from that perspective and I was like, okay, so it wasn't just me. It's, it's the, it's that combat line unit mentality that you have and you go into a support unit, a POG unit and you're like, this is a whole different experience. It's probably got its pluses and its minuses. Oh, it absolutely does. You know, being, being aviation, I want to say in 2000, was it 2018 or 19, we went to Fort Irwin and I'm sure you and Everybody else on this who's listened to this podcast has been a forder one at one point being in the box. Mm-hmm. Being aviation support in the box was a whole different ballgame than it was being combat. <laughs> and what was cool too about being air traffic is that when we're on the mic, we're we tell officers what to do. Yeah. And so it almost sets up that false sense of it's almost a false ego that you have being air traffic. You know, you're you're an enlisted service member and you can you know, tell pilots, which are generally officers or warrant officers, you know, hey, you can do this. Don't do that. You know, I'm going to I'm going to write you up. <laughs> I'm sending a report. And so it it was a whole different ballgame being um, air traffic. And it was it was a lot of fun times and a lot of stressful times. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. So what would you say like your funniest experience as like an ATC is like, you know, like you're talking to a pilot over the net. Like, what's the the funniest thing Hood, that you've ever had? And this is actually in green training, just before we're uh, heading out to Syria. And there's a lot going on. So Fort Hood, which was Longhorn, had a it, it gets very congested very quick. Mm-hmm. And we're mostly dealing with rotary wing, and rotary wing is a lot easier to deal with than fixed wing because you can literally tell a helicopter to stop and hover, yeah. and they'll stop. And as, as fast as they can, but they'll stop, you know, rotor uh, with fixed wing, they, they can't stop. So it's, it's a, you, you have a little more ability to play with the, the puzzle that air traffic is with rotary wing. And so it was one night, it was, we probably had about five Apaches that were transitioning along the, the VR route that circles all of the forehead training areas. We had about a flight of 10. Uh, a mix of Chinooks and Apache, uh, not Apache, sorry, Blackhawks that were, uh, they're going out to do a mission. We just had a lot going on. And in the middle of all this, we had um, one Blackhawk that was going from the north to the south, going towards a training area 1-3 to do some sling load operations. And we had a, a Apache gunnery that was going on over at the the gunnery range for them. And in the middle of trying to talk to all the guys who are transitioning and on the, on the ground, uh, the guy who was transitioning over to training area one, three, he goes, Hey tower, uh, we're transitioning over here. And it uh, appears that we have accompanying traffic flight of two Apaches that are over in the gunnery range. And instead of using proper phraseology, I was like, yeah, Roger, just everybody stay away from each other and just continue talking to these guys over here. And we had the, um, our OC that was behind us trying to check us off for deployment. Yeah. And he goes, what the fuck? <laughs> I just turned around in the middle of everything. I was like, I got to do what I got to do. He's like, that's not the right fucking answer. I can get, I can kick you out of this tower for that. I'm like, are you? <laughs> <laughs> and so all my buddies, they just kept roasting me about that. It's like, everybody stay away from each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was probably one of the funniest moments because it was in the middle of all the stress. And it was, it was one of those things that I hate to say, I hate to be this guy. I hate to say this, but it was one of those times like you had to be in the tower for that. Yeah. Cause it was, it was, so much going on, so much stress. And that was like one of those icebreakers that just kind of came out. It was like, just stay away from each other over there. Just yeah, do what you got to do, man. <laughs> it's one of those things where like in the moment you're embarrassed about it, but after it happens, like, you know, months later, it becomes one of those good stories that yeah. you like, 
excited to tell. Like, I would, I would say that that hood had probably the most ridiculous stories. We had one of our guys who is running the GCA, which is our um, mobile radar system, and they have to do a lot of math and calculations. They have to go out there with a the theodolite and the stadia rod and try to figure out what the. I, I'm not gonna sit there and try to pull this, this information out of my ass, but it's like they try to figure out like you know how much runway they have and all that kind of yeah. stuff. And he's in the middle, like in the, I would say on the approach end of the runway, right in the middle with his theodolite. And so I, we had a, a 60 coming in and he's on short final, just about to land. And I'm giving him, Hey, just so you know, we have a guy on the, on the runway. He's doing calculations. I'll get him off real quick. And I'm trying to get a hold of our guy on the, our little handheld and he's not answering. And so one of our other NCOs takes a binoculars, looks up at him. Like I said, we have the 60 coming on short final. He just turns over his shoulder and looks and then continues doing what he's doing. (laughs) (laughs) Like there's a fucking helicopter over you landing on the runway and you're going to continue. Like you could take these calculations at any point during the day. And right now is the time that you think is the most important that you're better than this helicopter that's trying to land. (laughs) And I was so mad, but now that I look back on it, that was, it's, it's funny, but I was just in that moment, I was so heated. I'm just sitting there trying to scream at him from the, from the tower. And of course he can't hear me, you know, we're probably, you know, 500 feet from the runway and he's up the runway all the way to the North. Like he can't hear what I'm saying, but I'm sitting there screaming from the catwalk and (laughs) (laughs) you idiot, get the fuck off my runway. (laughs) So you're training up for deployment and uh, that's where that story kind of ended. But so what was like a, a big motivation for you to like to serve in general? Yeah, honestly, my it was the one of the big ones is I just didn't really know what I was going to do after high school. I knew I wanted to go to college, but I didn't know what I wanted to study. Mm-hmm. I was. I really wanted to be a game warden. Game warden? Yeah, Department of Fish and Wildlife. And I was so dead set on it. But I had to have four years of, for a bachelor's degree for environmental science or something. And it was, I just didn't have the money for it at the time. And my, my parents offered to pay for it, but you know, I wanted to be Mr. Independent, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so I just said, I'm just going to join the military. I actually went to go talk to the Navy recruiter and, and he goes, oh, everything was good. And I was going to be a master at arms and. And so that way I can kind of get into that law enforcement mentality. Yeah. Yeah. And then he looks at my medical records and he goes like, Oh, it looks like you were diagnosed ADHD at a young age. So, you know, we can't take you just yet. And I was like, all right, well, I was a little disappointed. I walk out and well, there's a fate was standing out there smoking a cigarette (laughs) (laughs) and it was the armor recruiter. And he's like, Hey, you just get turned out by the Navy. Yeah. He's like, you look a little down. What happened? I told him, he's like, Come on in. Let's have a conversation. And well, you know what? Later that week, I talked to my parents, let them know. And my dad was my my dad has never been one to like, you know, what's the word? Deny what I want to do. But he has said he's like, I'll go out right now and buy you a brand new Jeep Wrangler if you don't join the army. <laughs> and my mom was, you know, my mom she was she didn't cry in front of me. But afterwards, I can, you know, I, I knew because yeah. she was all emotional about it. Yeah. And I said no to both. And I joined, signed that paper. Within about a month, I went to MEPS. And after, it was funny. After basic training, I came back in. <clears throat> I came back to visit my family and stuff. And my daddy goes, I'm really happy you said no to the Wrangler. I don't have the money for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it all worked out. But I think, you know, a lot of people wonder why people serve. But I think if you're a kid who hasn't like quite figured out what he wants to do yet, I think the military is a perfect place for you to kind of like figure things out, gain some experience. And I think we as a society would be a lot better off uh, if, you know, more people, more people did that, you know? Yeah, it definitely gives a different perspective on everything, even if you even if the guys who've never deployed. I mean, you went to Syria. I mean, like not a lot of people can say that. And I'm sure that you had 
plenty of cool experiences over there. I mean, right? It was really cool, especially going back to like the, the first C17 we had. It was so the runway we had was only like maybe 4,000 feet. Like I would actually say probably just a little bit less. And it's almost the, like a straight vertical takeoff and landing, right? Oh, yeah, it was combat landings. Well, the, C, the C-130s were able to do it, no problem. But the C-17s, they had to do an overhead. So they would come in, um, do an beam tower approach, hit the downwind. And as they're hitting the downwind, they're slowing down and descending from 5,000 to 2,100. And then as soon as they're on a short final, they, they pull the, the reverse and they do a really, really short landing. It was always impressive. I remember that when I was at uh, KLZ for a short time, when they turn those reverse thrusters on when they're making the landing. I mean, that, that shit was loud, dude. That shit was loud as fuck. Oh, it's really loud. And so there's a couple of early morning flights that would say like zero four, zero five. Everybody's still asleep. You know, you can you can hear the dogs out in every every town that's surrounding us still barking. Yeah. And you hear the uh, the call to prayer in the morning. And then everything just gets woken up by the C seventeen. We're just hitting the hitting the reverse and i was like well everybody's awake now <laughs> i always liked that because you always knew that meant that uh mail was coming you know? yeah and you knew that you know the g-lock was on time you were gonna get like you know your care packages and stuff you know mail mail uh, mail time was always the best you know like i said like i was mentioning to you before we started recording i was a uh, we were with the frst and so because we were in our own little area we had our mail and supplies coming in with the Chinooks coming in from Erbil. Yeah. And so we see the Chinooks and we'd be up there in the tower with binoculars. I'm like, do you see a purple bag? Do you see a box? Is the forklift out there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't spend a lot of time out there in KLZ, uh, but, you know, that was the closest landing zone to where I was at. Uh, so, you know, if I was there for some reason and, you know, you heard the C-17s whining, you, you knew that the mail was coming, you know, so it was always it's always a welcome sound. So you uh, spent most of your time at RLZ. I don't, I don't think I ever went to RLZ. I did do a few ring routes in Syria, but uh, I'm trying to think. I flew to Iraq from Syria one time, and I'm trying to remember where we stopped. I think it may have been RLZ. It was either RLZ or Green Village, but that that helicopter flight I'll never forget. Uh, I was in this British uh, CH-47 or whatever their their variant of it is, and uh, <laughs> it was it was a very old uh, ch 47 to say the least and you know riding in those alone is sketchy but this one was extra sketchy it felt like it was like you know like oscillating like you know like it was about to fall apart so it, it was pretty rough ride I, I do remember that oh yeah it almost feels like you're in an old cadillac yeah with really shitty suspension it's just every bump you're you feel it i just remember thinking like this is gonna be the worst way to die like, this is not how I want to go if I'm going to die in Syria's in a helicopter crash. You know? Yeah, and it's not even like because you guys got shot at or anything. It's just because the, the bird is just so shitty. And it was funny because we did get quite a few uh, uh, British SAS birds that came through. And it was one night. It was, you know, the, the term IFR means like instrument flight rules means you can't see shit. You know, not just because it's dark, but because the, the fog. Oh, yeah. Super low is like the fog was on the ground. Like if you were... It was is the point to where if we're up in the tower, and like I said, it was a short runway. It was to the point to where if you're up in the tower, you couldn't see the departure in. Really? Yeah. And so these these two Brit uh, these two British birds come in. They land to get fuel, and we're like, hey, yeah, sorry about that, gentlemen. We weren't up in the tower because we were kind of like on on call basis. We weren't up there constantly. Yeah. And so we didn't know you guys were coming, so we, we would have been out there. And he's like, oh no, it's all right, mate. And <laughs> I was like, hey, just so you guys know, like I know you just flew through IFR. Uh, but since we are a VFR tower, I mean, it's visual flight rules, you know, we are a VFR tower. We don't have any of the equipment for IFR. Uh, so we can only really give you advisory and we can give you the, the weather information. It's really about it. And he's like, no, oh, it's all right. We know where we're going. <laughs> I'm like, all right, man. So we give him uh, an advisory departure and they go, okay. Well, they pick up almost the minute that they picked up, they were out of sight because the fog was so dense. 
I'm like, well, all right, bye, boys. Good luck. <laughs> Some of those pilots, man, they they got hours on them, and uh, they ain't scared to do stuff like that. Like I was, one of my buddies was he's going pilot, and so part of the part of the pilot program um, training program is uh, you have to do EPTs, which is emergency procedure training, and they have to do it under nods at night. And so it just every time I see it, it just my gut drops. Like I just. If I was in that cockpit, I'd be shitting my pants because they have to basically drop out of the sky under nods. You know how nods have really shitty depth reception. Well, the pilot ones are, are not as bad. Pilot ones know. with the white phosphorus are a lot nicer. But like either way, man, like you're still dropping out of the sky under nods. And I'm like, oh, I'm good. I, I'm, I'm happy being on the ground. I don't want to be up there. <laughs> <laughs> it's all fun and games until that telephone pole goes through your hole. You know? Yeah, no shit. <laughs> That's cool, though. I didn't really get to interact with the Brits a whole lot, um, but that does remind me of a pretty funny story uh, when I was at LCF. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it's like this decrepit old like cement factory that used to be owned by ISIS, and you know, we took control of that like you know in the early parts of the war. Um, but I was it was Fourth of July. Yeah, I was I was partying. Uh, that day a little bit because I had most of the day to myself. I didn't have to work too much. Um, so yeah. I remember that night I was getting ready for work because I did have to work that night. And I was walking outside of the U.S. compound. And, you know, everybody's got those like little Hiluxes that they drive yeah. around. Even some guys like drove around motorcycles. Mm-hmm. They bought fucking motorcycles on the local market and ripped them around uh, inside LCF. But uh, so people drove like pretty decently most of the time, but not like, you know, crazy. But I was walking outside the U S compound and this Hilux comes like ripping around the corner. And I don't think anything of it. I'm like walking on the side. And as he's like ripping it around this corner, he loses control (laughs) of it. And I'm like looking at him like, Oh my God, like this guy's about to crash. And like in a split second, he hits a light pole he crumples the light pole so bad that it like falls over and like misses me by like five feet and it like shatters the glass like right in front of me and i'm like holy fuck and i look over and i see these guys in there they're sitting in the car like regaining their composure but there's shit leaking on the ground like pouring on the ground and i'm like thinking to myself like oh fuck like they uh they're leaking fuel and, you know, exhaust fuel. This truck's going to blow up. I got to get these guys out of there. So I go over and I'm like, hey, hey, are you okay? Are you okay? And they're like speaking in like broken English, but they're like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're fine. We're fine. I'm like, no, 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 the truck, like you got to get out. You got to get out. And then I start to examine it closer and they have a fucking redneck pool in the back of this Hilux <laughs> and it's off center. So it's like leaking, you know. And I'm like, holy fuck, like, these guys are fine. They were drunk. That, that's what I came to the realization of is that they were drunk. On 4th of July, they were hanging out in the redneck pool that's and they were hilarious. ripping this Hilux around and they crashed. But, you know, those guys got in a little bit of trouble. But uh, the French soft dudes, you know, partying a little too hard on 4th of July. It's not even their holiday. You know? That's one of those what the fuck stories that in the moment you're like, you're, you're kind of pissed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, back to RLZ because I'm trying, I'm really trying to remember. I have to look at a map, but I know there's that one air base or one base that's next to the regime air base. That's like, you know, a standalone regime air base in Syrian territory where were you kind of or not Syrian SDF territory um were you kind of near that or where where exactly is Shidati, Conoco, Green Village, NLZ, RLZ, Day oh, I can't I can't think of what location that would be I was just curious if maybe you guys like you know had interactions or you know events where you saw like Russians or like Turkish or like regime forces. Yeah. There was, there was a couple of times where there was one, we were, no, we were all down in the, the S610, which was, we turned into our operations room. 
mm-hmm. where we would uh, track flights. We would we would call everybody, and they would call us if something was going on. And all of a sudden, we got a call from the war club side. And they're like, "Hey, did you guys are you guys up in the tower?" And we're like, "No, we don't have anybody up there, and we had no flights coming in." So well, we just had um, two uh, two Heinz fly to the west. I'm like, "Oh, that's cool. No big deal." Like, what do you want us to do about it? Like, we're just we're just controllers. We're gonna do give them a fucking report. <laughs> like, you didn't talk to us. And then there was another one where we were actually uh, we were playing frisbee, you know, like pokes do. <laughs> frisbee cornhole and golf. We were playing with the Frisbee and all of a sudden we hear this helicopter and, you know, there would be the occasional time we would get a, a, an unscheduled flight coming in. So we would just go and grab the man pack or the uh, embitter and we would control them that way. You know, initial initial um, contact with them. And then once we get the initial contact, we give them the, the weather information and we'll run out to the tower, get everything set up and then we'll be out there. Yeah. And, but it, that was so few and far between because we were really, we were really cognizant about checking with everybody in the region about flights. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of a sudden we hear this, this helicopter and didn't sound like a 60, didn't sound like a 64 or a 47. It just had a weird sound to it. And I run out, I have the embitter in my hand. I'm trying to get a hold of them on our frequency, nothing. And I look up and it's a, it was a Puma, oh, a, Turkish, yeah. a Turkish Puma that, uh, came in from the North. Literally it had to have been maybe 500 feet above ground level. They came in from the north, cut right over their our ECP, and continued going. And but we never really worried about the the Russians or the Turks because the way I looked at it is they're they're not going to hit us. We're not going to hit them. We're just going to continue fucking with each other like we have throughout all of all of history. Yeah, it's such a weird situation that we're in with Turkey and like you know how they how we go about like interactions yeah. with them especially in like syria because you know they're they're a lot more evil than they uh lead the world on to to think you know uh and you know they just they do that type of stuff just to just to show us that they can uh you know they got the 10th largest military so they're they're trying to show out and just be like yeah we're here you know? it's a hey bitch what are you gonna do about it for sure for sure. That's exactly. We had that. And then we would get UAS all the time. And so we would be, especially at night, we can see them. So for some reason, we can identify the Turkish ones because they never turned off their anti-collision lights. Yeah, you can see them on uh, Thresher, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Or like on, the, on Thresher on the radar or thermals or um, even just plain view because like their, their lights would still be on. But they would, it would come over. No, I would say maybe a thousand feet, twelve hundred feet, yeah. and they would be they would just hang out, and I'd get on the the line with B Doc and be like, hey, so you know we have unidentified UAS transitioning over RLZ. Do we have any friendly UAS in the area? And they'd be like, no, we don't have anything. Like Tower, we can't see anything. All right, well here's the position of it. It's, it's hanging out at the northeast corner, just watching it. Like a quadcopter. Or- Either yeah, I would I would assume at that one was probably a quadcopter. A lot of the other ones were fixed wing. Mm-hmm. But this one, you can see it was just hovering. And I, we're, we're looking at it in nods and we're, you know, we're, we're watching and observing and we keep trying to talk to B-Doc about it. And for about 15 minutes, like, yeah, we can't, we still don't have eyes on it. I'm like, B-Doc, go out of your tent. Stop looking at the radar screen. Yeah. Look in the sky at the northeast corner and you will see lights in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's crazy how uh, bold they're getting with stuff like that. In general. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, they're just trying to, you know, show show us that they can do stuff, but it's really, like, wrong. It's the proxy war of all proxy wars is all it is. Yeah, they're, they're definitely, like, everywhere uh, in Syria. But, you know, it, it's a strange situation we're in because, you know, they're, they're part of NATO, you know, but they, they don't uphold the NATO values and they don't represent NATO well. So we're in, like, this weird spot with them where we can't like breach NATO by, you know, holding them accountable. And it's really sad. Like they shut off the water to the Euphrates. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, they do stuff like that to the Kurdish people. And it's just sad that they harbor that much hate for a generally peaceful people. Um, just because of some political stuff that they have going on with the Kurdish tribe in Turkey. Yeah. And we were, we were even there during the, during the time of, um, was not 
for some reason, what I was about to say, Artsakh, but no, it's uh, um, Armenia and Azerbaijan. And Turkey was also in, or Turkey and Russia was also involved in that. And of course, you know, we had guys in Iraq and two locations in Iraq and they, they had Turkish and Russian stuff going on there too. Yeah. And so it was just, it was a lot of frustrating situations that we really couldn't do much about. Like when, you know, we had the, um, the aviation support line call us up and say, Hey, there's two Russian lines to the West. I'm like, cool. What, well, like, what are we going to do about it? We have us, especially us as air traffic controllers, what we don't have access to any of the air defense stuff. We're literally here just to say, hey, you're clear to land or you're clear to take off or, hey, no, you can't. That's that's our job. You say that story about the drone. Did you guys have uh, drone busters on RLZ? We or? had one when Third ID came in. Oh, really? Yeah. And it was it's it was funny. We had one night where it was a swarm of drones. And there was... BDOC was saying that they saw about 20 on their radar. Were they uh, Turkish? Uh, we don't know who they were. But they were just surrounding us. And I would assume that there was, it was probably Turkish or Russian or our hell, because we even got a, a brief saying that Hezbollah was in the area because something that the Israelis were doing. And so we kind of assumed that was it was it was probably one of the one of the more wealthy groups that was out there with you know having the ability to put up 20 quadcopters. Yeah, because at this point the physical caliphate of ISIS has been defeated. It's just like small cells and yeah and i doubt that they have the budget to you know put up their entire budget of quadcopters in the air for for the chance of them being taken down and that, i mean that would be my assumption but then again i'm also fiscally different than you know a terror group <laughs> uh, so we had we had this guy he was driving the the pajero was driving around rlz and this one poor e5 you know, you, he looked, you, he could tell he probably just picked up his five and he's running around with the drone buster and he's trying to, he's trying to aim it at these, his quad cop. He's like, it's not working. It's not working. And he's like, oh, because they're too far. He's like, get me closer. He's like, we can't, <laughs> we're literally on the berm. And so they're driving around and they go from uh, bunker to bunker trying to see if everybody's okay. And he has this drone buster and he, he had no idea what he was doing. Poor kid. <laughs> That's interesting that they kept it out of range because it's almost like they know that you have that capability if that if that's really how it was because you know it, it almost yeah. makes you think that you know it it is a more advanced adversary like maybe hezbollah but it, it was probably turkey to be honest that's what i was thinking and then not even four days after that we got hit with about seven rockets and but the funniest part was is that I was asleep and I got woken up by, it wasn't, the concussions didn't wake me up. It was, it was the intercom because we were too far away. Yeah, we were, so we were too far away from the intercom to hear the incoming. So for us, it just sounded like static and a very faint voice that, you know, saying, you know, seek shelter. Yeah. And so I got woken up by that. I'm like, what's that? And then um, our, our section leader comes in because there's only four of us there. And our, and our team. And he's like, get up. And I'm like, what's going on? Do we have an aircraft? And he's like, no, we're getting hit. IDF. I'm like, what? And like, I, like I said, I just woke up. It's probably two o'clock in the morning and I'm still trying to wake up and I'm like, all right. So I put my pants on and I didn't even bother putting my blouse on. And I'm sitting there thinking like, cause we're just going to the bunker. I'm like, do I need my kit? No, nah, I don't need it. Nah, I should grab it. No, I don't need it. We're it's, it's over. We're going to go to the bunker. I'm like, but I'm an NCO. I should do the right thing. And I, I'm like, all right. So I take my kit, throw it on, and you no, know, looking like a goober <laughs> sitting in a bunker. And one of our one of our guys in E4, he comes out. He's in this piss shit mood. And I'm like, dude, what's wrong with you? I'm like, you mad that you woke up? He's like, no, man. Velt Martin came in. He's like, he's like, we have incoming. And so I jump up real quick and I hit my head on the wall. <laughs> So he had this, he had this massive welt on his forehead because it was still dark in the tent, and he waxed his head on the plywood uh, wall, and he was he was not happy. And he had his Kevlar on, and he had his rifle slung, and you know this massive kit on. He just looked so <laughs> mad. <laughs> and so we found out that the rockets that hit us, we got hit with seven, four detonated, and they all hit about four hundred meters away. Which I mean, when you think about it, with rockets, it's not far. Yeah. And, but I was like, I was still I'm like, 
you know someone out there was pissed. Like, you know, some guy was like, Muhammad, did you shoot all rockets? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I shot all the rockets. You, so you didn't fire one and see where it landed? You shot all seven and missed all seven? <laughs> He's like, now I have to make a call to the Iranians. They're going to be pissed that I'm asking for more rockets. <laughs> and so it just ended up becoming this joke. We had this uh, running joke that we we're protected by a wall of retarded. <laughs> because, like, we had just shit. We had a rocket truck that was in Rumelin that was pointed at us that actually got stolen by another extremist group. So that was irony at its finest. That was that was probably the funniest one. The fact that some extremist extremist group found this rocket truck that was pointed at Americans and thought, you know what, I want this more. Yeah, they stole a, a rocket truck that was pointed at us. And then there was another one that was on the Iraqi side of the border that got picked up by no the Iraqi forces. There was another one that it just the timer had gone off and it just didn't fire. And then we finally got hit with those seven rockets and they missed all of them. And so that's why the running joke is we're just protected by a wall of stupid. <laughs> like there's nothing that's protecting us here except for just dipshittery. <laughs> it's always funny to me uh, on those big bases whenever there's a, like a rocket attack or whatever, you know, everybody goes to the bunker. But literally by the time everyone's in the bunker, then the attack, it's already. You and know, then you're over. sitting in the bunker for an hour and a half to two hours waiting for the all clear. And just because someone's up there. You know, I understand the reasoning for it. I'm not going to sit there and talk shit that, you know, we have to stay in the bunker, but still it's like that long it's over. And the, it was funny earlier, you mentioned 4th of July. We had a, um, there was the rocket attack that happened in our on 4th of July. Oh and yeah, that's right. So you were there during, well, that. I wasn't in our but we had, uh, our section leader who had, he was supposed to be going on a ring route mission to green village. So he had to go to, leave Syria to go to Iraq to wait in the morning for, uh, to get on a Chinook to start doing the ring route. Yeah. And so he's out there and it was the 4th of July. He's, he said he's, he's like on the, he's on the phone with his mom and all of a sudden like you hear start, you start hearing booms in the, in the distance and his mom is freaking out. I'm like, Oh my God, are you getting attacked? And he's like, no, no, no. It's just, they're launching fireworks off in Erbil. And he's like, Oh, now that I think about it, this would actually be the perfect time for a rocket attack since fireworks are already going off. You know, the radar system's already, you know, kind of jittery because of the fireworks that are getting launched up in the air and stuff like yeah. that. And then, well, no shit, like not even five minutes after he said that, you got the incoming alarm and some drone hit the the T-wall next to the runway in Erbil. And, which was actually ridiculously close to the tower that we had guys in. That's crazy. I didn't even, I didn't even think about that, that you were in the Middle East the same time as that. Yeah. So what was that like at RLZ? You know, Erbil gets attacked by yeah. What is that like on that day at RLZ? And of course, you know, everything, it, if the security goes up and everybody's like, oh, if you're out past 10 o'clock, you know, make sure you have your kit on. And I'm like, oh, are they going to look at the timer and be like, oh, it's 10 o'clock. All right, time to kill them. Like <laughs> they're going to fucking launch rockets or mortars or, you know, shoot at us no matter what time of day it is. I don't know why we have to do it after 10 o'clock. And that's yeah. specific. Yeah. But, um, and we had the sergeant major of war club come over and I'm like, hey, sergeant major, what's going on? He's like, yeah, so Erbil just got hit. So uh, after after uh, 10 o'clock, yeah, make sure you guys have your kid on or don't. I don't give a fuck. He <laughs> <laughs> was on the way out. He didn't care about anything. Yeah. And he's like, ah, I don't give a fuck. And he walks away. I'm like, all right, well, sergeant major said he didn't care. So, <laughs> yeah. and then that night we had a, a C-130 that was coming in. It's just normal schedule. And... The all of a sudden he goes, he's flying over one of the little towns of the south, and all of a sudden he chaffs and flares just over the town. Now, on the 4th of July, this is just after we found out our beal got hit. I'm like, fuck. So, you guys see these chaffs that are going off in the air, and you're like, oh god, like, we're about to watch a fucking angel down, man. Like, this isn't this is gonna be bad. And he lands, and we go on the net, and like, hey, what happened? He's like, and this is um, around the time that we found out that. Almost every single time an aircraft flies into Syria, like they'll be flying around Iraq and it's quiet. The minute that they cross that border, their alarms just fucking start pinging and going off crazy. And so... What, like radar system? Yeah, their radar system, their... Uh, um, their what, would be, what would it be called? Their, uh, their defense system. Targeted. Then all of a sudden, like their little screen there goes a beep, 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 beep. And then it'll be like, hey, uh, 
you know, you're being targeted from the Northwest or something like that. Yeah. I'm not going to try to, you know, say, you know, matter of fact, cause I'm not a pilot, but the, from almost every single pilot we, we talked to saying the minute that they flew into Syria, their alarm just started going off to the point where they actually had to turn down the speaker because it was annoying. Like they couldn't even think straight. They couldn't even talk on the radio. I wonder if that's like Turkey or like, you know, whoever like locking on to them as they enter. Probably, yeah, probably the Turks, the Russians, you know, in Syria. And then also on top of that, they're saying too, like they'll pick up um, reflections coming up from the ground. So like there was one time they're flying over Iraq and there was a, not a solar farm. It was a, I don't know why I was thinking solar. No, it's an oil refinery. Mm. And so with the fire and the smoke and the reflector pool that they have there, it was just everything all together. It was pushing off some weird reflection and the sensors picked it up and they just chaffed. So it's not even like it has to be being targeted. Like the sensors could pick up any kind of light anomaly or any kind of, um, Okay, so it just triggers the countermeasures. I, I thought you were about to say that it was like the pilot was just like, oh, it's 4th of July, like deploy countermeasures, America. <laughs> Flight coming in. It was one of the last of the black sheeps coming through. And we had a C-17 on final and we had a black sheep flight coming in from the west. And it was a, so it was a Chinook and a 60. And the, so the 60 was first, the Chinook was second. And then, like I said, on short final, we had a C-17 and I'm on the mic and for some reason, our truck wasn't working at the time. And I can't remember exactly why, but we're on man pack talking to these birds. And so already it's shitty comms because we have this, you know, Harris fucking bulky ass man pack yeah. with antennas sticking up and trying to talk to three different aircraft. And, and then all of a sudden the 60 flares over the FARP. And oh, wow, that's a no, no. <laughs> so funny because like I didn't know what to say in that very moment because I was trying to give the C-17 clearance. And so the only thing that came out of my mouth, and I sounded like a disappointed father, and I was like, "Black sheep," <laughs> <laughs> and he he just goes in and he's like, "Yeah, Tower, uh, it's my bad." <laughs> That's crazy, and and nothing uh, detonated or caught trash on fire? over in the over in the range area was caught on fire, but luckily, no none of the flares hit the hit the bags, which was nice. So for the listeners who, who don't know, uh, FARP is a, uh, is a what now? What does it stand for? Oh, it's a, a forward rearming, uh, excuse me, forward arming and refueling area. Yeah. So it's basically a place where aircraft can land and reload on ammo and get fuel. But, you know, also a very dangerous place to be setting off flares uh, because of, you know, yeah. All the flammable stuff. It was such a split second thing too. So the Chinook darts off to the left as soon as the 60 flared and the C-17 was just about to do a go around. And so we had the the 47 that dipped off to the left and would be right in the, <clears throat> excuse me, right in the, the pattern of the go around for the C-17. And so I jump on real quick. I'm like, Moose so-and-so, the C-17. I was like, Moose, uh, this is Tower. Um, are you guys still good? And they're like, yeah, we're good at my arm, you know, runway three, five, Queerland. And so he landed, everything, everything was fine. It, nothing, nothing bad happened, but that was just one of those things that was just like, like I said, just, I felt like a disappointed father, like black sheep. Yeah. yeah <laughs> sorry. <Tower. laughs> that's, that's so shocking to me. That's crazy. Yeah. So most of the shit that happened to us over there was completely avoidable, just stupid things that happen. Yeah. But you know, some of those things that you look back on and you laugh about it. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, some of these things, you know, it's just cool to like been have been able to like experience them and like, you know, be in situations that, you know, a typical, you know, everyday American won't find themselves in. It's definitely like, you know, a cherished time. Yeah. One time specifically sticks out in my mind, uh, one of the guys from my unit shot down a uh, Turkish quadcopter. Um, oh, and, shit. Yeah, he did it with the uh, the drone buster. We were on a uh, an OP in, in the north, you know, on, along the Turkish border uh, in Kobani, actually. Okay. So we, uh, we were there with half of an SF team, and a team sergeant gives a drone buster to one of my guys. And, you know, tells him to get the thing on the ground so we can figure out who it belongs to and everything. 
So, you know. But that was a cool experience. <laughs> he shot it down. Uh, we sent it off to the SODIF, you know, to get the forensics done on it and, you know, figure everything out like that. And uh, yeah, I actually had the opportunity to be there when they were pulling the stuff off of the drone uh, at the SODIF. Mm-hmm. And, and it ended up being like a, a privately owned quadcopter. So it was privately owned by... It was a... privately owned by a Turkish commando. Weird. And he didn't even bother to, like, delete anything off of his memory card before he, like, flew it over there. So... Yeah. There's literally, like, pictures of him, like, in front of the commando headquarters uh, on the Turkish side of the border. There's pictures, like, selfies. He was basically taking selfies of the drone with the drone, like, you know, in random places, like, when he's out, like, training or, like on an op so he literally like you know a guy really snitched on himself yeah exactly you know <laughs> like mysterious drone i wonder who it belongs to you know but <laughs> yeah he literally had his face you know right in front of the turkish commando headquarters which you know they got really bold with that stuff you know while i was over there yeah you know, we're, we're like at an op you know they know where it's at we know where theirs are at so we're just looking at each other this whole time so, right like looking at each other on glass doing surveillance on each other you know hours hours a day doing that flipping each other off and <laughs> it's pretty funny because like you know <clears throat> when you flip them off they like get you know real excited and then they like freak out and they like go get their friends like you know hey they just flipped us off it's just funny because i I don't know if they didn't know that we knew where they were at or whatever but it would be like a big deal if you all quiet big fuck you from the (laughs) americans yeah i mean it was definitely cool experience to be in the middle of all this between like so many different countries and actors and oh yeah it's so different like different from like afghanistan and iraq i mean more similarities to iraq than afghanistan but um it's just you know very different you know it was like one of the weird ones that happened was we had a we got we got a call saying hey you're gonna have a single i want to say mi-26 yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna say MI26 just for sake of um, say for sake of the podcast and, and time, but the uh, we just got a call. Hey, you're gonna have a single MI26 coming in. What is an MI26? It's a looks like a Russian cargo helicopter. Almost looks like a a small version of a sky crane. Those uh those ones you see all the time during the fire seasons. Yeah. And but just a little bit bigger of a belly, but the is just really wide like that. And so, we're like, okay, it's weird. Like, do we know who's on it? We're like, no, we can't say. All right, I'm tired of this, you know, hush hush bullshit. <laughs> and all we were told is possibly State Department. We're like, oh, weird. All right, so we're up in the tower. We're talking to them, and they call out. And it was, it was weird. It was because it's a Russian helicopter, like painfully American accents. Oh, I know. I know which helicopter that is. The one with like the red and white rotors on it. Is that the one? Yeah. Yeah, that's a diplomatic um, diplomatic transport. Okay. Yeah, I don't know who it was when you were there, but uh, Ambassador Roebuck, who was the special envoy to Syria when I was there, uh, he flew around in that. It's kind of like the State Department's guy for the SDF. Okay. I've seen that helicopter a lot. And he would fly around in it. Yeah. Those are actually State Department pilots that fly that. But I did see that helicopter a lot. And someone did tell me it was Russian. So I'm like pretty sure we're talking about the same same one. Yeah. So it was it was weird seeing a Russian helicopter with, like I said, painfully American, like, you know, southern accent. Um, and at one point, I'm pretty sure one of the one of the pilots had a thick Boston accent. Like I was able to understand the French pilots more than I was able to understand him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, get in the car. <laughs> And so we had we had that one, and every time that that uh, State Department bird came through, ODA guys would be all over the place. Yeah, and so that w- it was cool to you know sit down and have a conversation with those guys, and 
there was there'll be occasional times we get the SF guys coming through and we just have conversation with them and they, they again this is around the time that War Club was there and um, the third ID and this was I don't know if you saw the video that came out but there was a, a American convoy that was driving through and the all of a sudden they got blocked off in this village and it almost became a riot because the Americans are coming through. Oh, uh, what time? Time frame? This had to have been June or July. Of 2020? 20, 21. 21. And this one, they got in contact with the regime forces? It was, it was completely about? civilian. Uh, but what the, oh, one of the gunners got hit with a mass, nasty rock. Yeah, like broke his jaw. Like his jaw was hanging and blood everywhere. But the I was talking to one of the SF guys that was attached to that um, that infantry unit, which the infantry guys were there too. And so I was talking to the, I was talking to that crew, and they were saying that one of the things that stood out in the whole thing was that there was one guy in the village who looked like he was kind of inciting everything. Mm-hmm. Like he be he had a brand new iPhone six, really nice chiseled clean beard looked clean nice clothes didn't look like he belonged in the syrian village yeah you know it looked like he came out of you know dallas yeah you know he was nice clean shoes brand new phone and he would be filming and he was the one who was pushing the american and uh screaming screaming at him saying get the fuck out of my village and um that's kind of about this, the time when the rest of the, the, the village kind of came up and started pushing around too. And so one of the thoughts was it was, it was a, possibly an Iranian uh, in there trying to incite violence in the city. Yeah. Smells, smells like Iran or Turkey, to be honest. Uh, they have a vested interest in what's going on in Iraq and Syria. Mm-hmm. Smells... I'm leaning more towards Termill. That that sounds kind of like a typical Termill like psyop. Uh, obviously, they would love for the the Kurdish people and the SDF to ha- have like reservations about the Americans. Yeah, and it was the uh, he was saying that the the minute that they all because the Americans they go to that village all the time and they always they got nothing but you know love from the villagers and then that one time it was just nothing but hate. Hmm. It's almost even more interesting. Like I said, the gunner got hit with a rock and his jaw was hanging and um, they all start backing away because, you know, the another population was armed. So, you know, all they're going to do is just back away and get get back into the trucks. And the then all of a sudden, the minute that they got to the trucks, two um, uh, technicals come up and just rush up. Oh, like got really hot for a second. With like but the minute that they all got back in the trucks, the or, um, the population kind of stopped at the the border of the town yeah and the hilux is backed away going back into the town so it was almost like peacocking that sounds strangely like fsa and fsa is a turkish backed uh, militia that would make sense the free syrian army which has almost nothing to do with actual syria yeah it almost sounds like they brought people to that town just to make that video so they can be like, look, everybody hates that the Americans are here. Yeah, and that sounds like what, what could have happened very, very easily. So you get back from Syria, what, last year? No, this year. How, how has everything been since you've been back? No, no, I got back in January. And I actually just got out of the garden in May. And... It was, it was kind of hard at first. Like, and when I say hard, it was just kind of difficult to transition back into just regular ass society. You know, being out there, you're living in a tent and you're rarely, rarely have air conditioning. We had, like, it was a lot of the locations, especially RLZ, for some reason, it was just the place that the army sent for generators to die. Generators? Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and we had we probably had three or four sixty Ks from May to August that just died, just because they're overworked or they're what? just running twenty four seven. Yeah, and so rarely did we have air conditioning. The uh, we only had one generator that was being kept on, so that way we kept power to the operations room in the surgical tent. 
And it was, I, I think the hardest part about the transition back was just at, you kind of get used to, this, you know, the comforts we enjoy uh, we, in the United States yeah, and fridge. modern countries. <laughs> so what is one thing that you miss about being in Syria? I mean, I know you just got back, so it might be a little hard for you to say, but I would say the hard, like the most thing, the, the thing I missed the most was just the fact that it was just the four of us and it was, we we're away from everything. We we're away from the flagpole. Yeah. You know, we didn't really get fucked with enough uh, or a lot at all. And it was every once in a while we'd get, you know, some brass coming up and talking to us, but that was really about it. Especially being part of the TTCS, which is the tactical terminal control system. We're already a small element within the air traffic unit. Yeah. You know, our main, our main priority is the tactical areas. So our, um, I say RLZ, um, HLZs, LZs, um, stuff like that, FARPs. So you would say that the thing you miss the most is like the army trusting you enough to be able to do your job like out in a place like that, like on your own with, with yeah, little Yeah, that was the nicest part. It was because the almost the entire time up in, well, I don't, I don't want to drop units, but like the second unit that came in that we kind of quasi fell under, mm-hmm. they were a little more... Um, micromanaging, yeah. but even still, it was it was not nearly to the point to where it was a pain in the ass. Yeah, it was it just big boy rules is what it was, and that's yeah. what that's what was nice about it is because you know especially all the people who who understand just your general garrison life, mm-hmm. it, most of the time it's not big boy rules at all. It's yeah. it's very you know I'm gonna treat you like a child because you're acting like a child. But when really, if you just leave the soldiers to go do what they want to do or do what they have to do, they'll get it done. Crazy, right? How like you can give people clear guidance and like, you know, an end state of where you want them to be. They, if you just leave them alone to do it, it's like unique skill of magic. getting everything done in a, the fastest time possible. <laughs> yeah, I definitely get what you mean. Like being in a place like Syria and having, you know, the trust to be able to do your job yeah. without, you know, people looking over your shoulder. Yeah. It, even if they wanted to micromanage you, they, they probably couldn't even. If yeah. And especially being such a niche MOS like we have. Yeah. Nobody really understands air traffic. And it's not because like they don't want, they can't because it is, it's an easy concept to grasp, but for someone who's not in that MOS, there's a lot of regulations that you have to understand yeah. in order to even try to regulate something. So it's, it's more of a pain in the ass to try to micromanage an air traffic unit. So at that point, it's just like, hey, you know what? I guess yeah, do what you got to do. I trust you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so like we would always get the emails coming in from Beering. Mm-hmm. And we would just, it was almost our entertainment to read these emails. You're like, fuck, that's cringy. Yeah, I always felt bad for those like over the horizon guys. I, I don't know how it was when you were there, but uh, Trump Trump put a cap on the amount of soldiers that could be like on the ground in Syria. I think it was like uh, 999. There was more than 999. And how they got away with that was like they would have guys come over from Kuwait, what they called over the horizon to be like, you know, temporary support for what we were doing in Syria. So, you know, that's how they like kind of got away with it. Yeah. There's obviously like limitless luxuries in Kuwait. Like there's much to be desired from a comfort standpoint there. I mean, other than Buring, but you know, I always felt bad for them because they had to leave Syria for a month. And it's kind of a weird thing to say. But it's but, just, yeah. I would take the the lower standard of living of living in an air conditioningless tent in Syria than be able to go to a Popeye's when I want. Yeah, and wear a PT belt everywhere <laughs> I go. <laughs> like we, one of the emails we got, and my mind was blown, was um, the, it came down from the squad or the battalion commander saying, I'll, I'll allow music in during duty hours, you know, there's 
the morale in Kuwait is super low, so I'll allow music. Wow, thanks, yeah, and man. So, but How gracious cool. of you. And so the first thing I thought was uh, from Shrek with the Lord Farquaad, some of you may die, but that's a sacrifice I am willing to make. <laughs> How gracious of you, sir, to allow music during duty hours. If it pleases the crown, can I play music during duty hours? <laughs> Yeah, what you said right there, though, hit the nail on the head. Like, I would rather be in the world's shittiest place and not have someone breathing down my neck than mm -hmm. be in somewhere comfortable, but have that person or those people, like, lurching over my every move and, like, micromanaging. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, very cool that we got to experience that um, in a place like that. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like people in other theaters can't really experience that yeah. sometimes. And just kind of the way the military has been going, you know, leaders at like the strategic level feel like they have to have, you know, their hand in, you know, things that, you know, go on on the ground that they don't have the right amount of situational like awareness for. Yeah. Like they do something that's like, could be perceived unsafe. That falls on my, that, that falls to my feet, and I have to take care of it. So I might as well. Might, yeah, but you know, I'll tell you right now, and I'm sure everybody has the same sentiment sentiment as me. You can have all the briefs in the world, all the sharp briefs, and all the EO briefs, and all the ASAP briefs that the army can shove down your throat. And it's not going to stop the people who are doing that anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Shitty people in every organization doesn't matter. Someone's going to read this brief and be like, "Oh, so it's wrong to rape people? I didn't know." Like what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and but anyway, so back to back to Syria versus you know with the um, um how left alone we were. It was nice because it was very self sufficient. Yeah, you know we had all the mechanics over there: generator mechanics, truck mechanics, Bradley mechanics, and you know I'm a barber, and that's what was nice about being deployed as a national guardsman. Uh, there's so many people in. And I used to be that way too, is, you know, oh, National Guard and Reserve. Oh, well. <laughs> but what's cool about them is that even though that active, du active duty, they do their job almost all the time versus National Guard, which only does it once a month. Yeah. What's, what's nice about it is they bring other assets to the table. Yeah. Everybody's got like their own job. Right. And you know, exactly. So, you know, I probably cut everybody's hair when I was over there, including people who were on the war club and third, uh, um, the, the third ID side. It was, I said, oh man, I kept saying third ID. I'm talking about fourth. I, I knew what you meant. Fourth. Fourth ID. I, I just caught myself on that one. Anyway, so the, uh, it was, it was nice because, you know, my buddy, he's, he's a mechanic you know, I, you know, I'm a barber. We had another guy who was really big into, uh, um, personal training. Getting everybody big out there, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All the guys on our team, it was just nothing but working out. It's the minute we woke up, 10 o'clock in the morning, we're like, all right, we're going to the gym. What are we working on today? Legs again. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you say you missed the least about your time in Syria? Mm. The shawarma shits. The shawarma shits? Yeah. Those ever subside for you? They lasted the whole time. It came in waves. Oh, really? Yeah. And we're pretty positive as E. coli. That's very possible. <laughs> and, you know, of course, that didn't stop us from eating, um, eating the shawarma. But, oh, man, I probably got it three times while I was there. We had one guy. It never went away. Yeah. Until he went to Erbil. That's crazy. Yeah. I lost a lot of weight because of that. <laughs> Majority of us got it when we first showed up. But yeah. So... What's it like now that you're officially out of the military? I mean, you've been off active duty for a little bit, but I mean, now that you're officially out of the guard oh, and nice. everything. It's really nice. Like I, and I don't want to dissuade anybody who is wanting to have a career in the military or who's looking to get in the military. Mm -hmm. That's not my position at all. This is just my perspective. It's just, I'm done with it. Yeah. Like, like I said, I was planning on getting out before deployment and then I was convinced to stay in for the duration yeah. and then just get out. So it was, I was mentally checked out. I wanted to move on to something, something else. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was a civilian air traffic career, but I had the opportunity to get back into a barbershop earlier this year. Mm -hmm. And I took that and it was probably the best move I've ever done. 
lot of, a lot of the stress that I had in my life kind of faded. Like I didn't have such a heavy chest. Yeah. The, um, one of the things that I always felt whenever drill weekend was coming up and for some reason, when drill weekend comes around, it always seems to happen on a weekend that you have something planned. <laughs> yeah. So for some reason, there's just the fate always happened that way. And it was on top of that. It was, I would shave, I would put my uniform on. And as I'm going, it's like, as I'm driving to the unit, I would just have this pit in my chest. And I was just like, I just don't want to be here. Yeah. And as, as an NCO, I didn't want to pass off that same sentiment towards the people who were still coming up, still coming up where they still had a, a fruitful career ahead of them. And I don't want to push my anti, uh, anti drill sentiment on, onto them. I didn't want them to feel that way. Yeah. I want them to make their career their own. And I just, so I was like, you know what? I think this is about that time I get out. I'm not going to, because with the National Guard too, I have everybody always asking me, like, why don't you do your 20? Well, in the Guard, it's a little bit different. You know, you have to have 20 years of cumulative. Yeah. So it's not 20 years consecutive. It's like all your drill weekends, all your ATs, all your orders and deployments all have to come together as 20 years. So I mean, there's still old timers in the Guard that are, you know, in their 60s, still trying to, you know, fish for orders to get the, the last little bit they can get to retirement. And I didn't want to, I wasn't going to put myself through that. Well, I think that kind of like speaks to your leadership qualities, like that you recognize that in yourself and you realize that, you know, if I have this attitude, then that's going to affect the people underneath me. Right. And one of the things that I had that, the reason why I had that feeling is because we've all had those, those leaders. Yeah. They are just bitter beyond repair. Absolutely. And they just hate everything and everybody. And I didn't want to become that. And I didn't want to see any of my Joes. I, I, I didn't want my Joes to see me like that. Mm. I was just like, you know, okay, now's that time. I don't, I'm not going to be that toxic leader that everybody talks about. Yeah. So I'm going to get out while I can. I think it's really important that people recognize that mm. and that like their soldiers would be better off if yeah. they made that decision earlier. But that's very similar to the reason I got out. Yeah. But generally speaking, I think that, you know, the military is a good place. Yeah. You know, and I wouldn't trade my experiences for anything. I tell a lot of people it was the best, worst time of my life. Yeah, the best, worst time. <laughs> <laughs> That's a phrase I use a lot about my time. And, you know, there's just these moments that I treasure so much yeah. that were like also moments that absolutely sucked. And then there were obviously moments where we, you know, lost people over there. Yeah. Obviously, I don't treasure that. But. Right. But it's still a memory you hold on to. Absolutely. You know, luckily, when we were there, we didn't lose anybody. You know, even the the infantry and the scouts that were there. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as I knew, I didn't hear any about them losing anybody. We didn't lose anybody. And so, you know, the way I look at it is you go home from that kind of a deployment with everybody. Cool, man. That's an ideal situation. Yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. All right, man. Well... This has been a really great episode. Uh, I really want to thank you for coming out. Um, This has been really cool. So we're going to plan on doing more stuff like this and talking to people, you know, who have been over there. Um, And hopefully, you know, this isn't your last time on, but we're going to try and get some more guests on here. And you got anything else you want to plug before we leave? I mean, if you're in the channel area, come on down to Lifeline Barbershop. We'd be more than happy to give you a clean cut. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, thanks for having me on. And it was a, uh, it was awesome just you know sitting there and talking to somebody who understands the, you know, like-minded people. Yeah. And I hope everybody who's listening enjoyed the episode. Yeah, man. All right. Well, that's a wrap for episode one. Thanks for listening, guys.